Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Adriana Villavicencio, who is a professor of education at uh, the University of California, Irvine. She wrote a really interesting book called Am I My Brother's Keeper? Educational Opportunities and Outcomes for Black and Brown Boys. We're going to dive into all of that in a bit, but before we get to any of that, I'd like to Welcome, Adriana, to the show. So welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Michael. It's so good to be here with you. Yeah, and uh, like I was saying when we were just getting set, I, I'm deeply immersed in your book right now. It's reverberating in my short-term memory, and hopefully some of it will stick. That's why this interview uh, hopefully will be helpful. But, <laughs> but it was a pretty interesting endeavor that you undertook here to measure the, the efficacy of a program that was developed specifically to help the Educational Opportunities and Outcomes for Black and Brown Boys. We're going to dig into that because I think it's relevant, obviously, for, for many different reasons nowadays. But before we get to that, we always like to begin with our guest's origin story, which you outlined very uh, beautifully in the book. But can you share with our list who you are, your educational journey, your professional journey, and what got you to this point in your career? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I am the proud daughter of Ecuadorian immigrants who grew up with this idea that education really was the pathway to the American dream. My mom really instilled in me the importance of a college education and a focusing on school and focusing on my academics. And for the most part, that did really work for me. But when I became a teacher and I taught in East New York and Brooklyn and also in East Oakland here in California, where I am now, I, I realized that a lot of students with a whole lot of motivation and a lot of capability and capacity didn't really have the same opportunities or access that I had um, growing up and going to the schools that I did. And, and so I became, I was a teacher for five years. I was a high school English teacher. I loved the classroom. I loved my students. I, I continued to want to make a bigger impact. So I took on a school leadership role and then I wanted to learn more. So I got my doctorate to really deepen my expertise. And a lot of the research that I conducted and read really confirmed what I saw in the classroom. And at the same time, I left my graduate program also for what could be done in schools and how we could transform the system to better serve students. Yeah. And that leads very nicely into Am I My Brother's Keeper, which I think the name might be useful to, to expand on a little bit as well, because there's a few, there's My Brother's Keeper and then the Expanded Success Initiative uh, which are interrelated. And I imagine our listeners uh, may or may not be familiar with that. So can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, some of these initiatives and programs that have been out there that are sp specifically targeting outcomes for, for Black and Brown boys? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of folks are familiar with My Brother's Keeper under President Obama's administration. But the Expanded Success Initiative, which is the subject of the book, was actually a predecessor to My Brother's Keeper. It started in 2012, uh, a few years before My Brother's Keeper. But the reason I named it with this title is twofold. So one is, yes, because there is a connection and the target population, but also speaks to, I think, the national conversation around boys of color and young men of color, not only in New York City, but other cities across the country. But the other piece is really trying to call on all of us to take responsibility for our brothers and our sisters and to take responsibility as educators for the students that we serve. It's a twofold uh, reason for the title. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting in that as you get into this, I, I came to understand that many of the aspects of the program include peer-to-peer -peer 
student-led initiatives, which is another dimension of that, where it, it does seem like there are components where not just us as educators or folks who care about the future of education, but also as members of the community, there is a, a certain level to which uh, you can activate within these boys and you speak to that sense of camaraderie and community that can be positive and beneficial, but it also in some ways is a response to the alienation and the distancing and, and disconnection that lots of times the, these children really can have throughout their educational experience. Yeah, so in New York City, part of the motivation for the Expanded Success Initiative, or ESI, I'll call it that for short, was really around college readiness. The city had seen a tremendous growth in high school graduation rates for all racial and gender groups. And at the same time, there was this disparity and college readiness and college outcomes for black and brown boys in particular. And at the same time, the leaders of ESI realized that it wasn't just about academics. It was really about addressing some of the, as you said, the alienation, the over-policing that boys experience outside of schools and inside their schools and classrooms, the lack of access to advanced coursework, the over-representation in uh, suspensions and the under-representation in gifted and talented programs. So some of the issues that they saw were um, prevalent in New York City schools and elsewhere were some of the motivation for the ESI and also some of the programmatic features of ESI. Yeah, yeah. And then this study, the book is based on a four-year program measuring the outcomes and understanding the, the success or some of the challenges mm -hmm. that, that these schools encountered. Can you shape up the, the scale and the scope of the, the research program? Yeah, so it is a four-year initiative under a larger umbrella called the Young Men's Initiative, which was focused not only on education, but also employment, criminal justice, and health outcomes. But ESI was the uh, four-year educational component. It was located in 40 New York City public high schools, serving about 15,000 Black and Latino men or young men. And our evaluation was really, again, answering two big questions. One is, how does this work? How are schools using the resources that were given as part of ESI to create programming and better schools for Black and Latino boys or Latinx boys? And second, did it make a difference on their academic outcomes? And to what extent did it make a difference on other sorts of outcomes, socio-emotional outcomes, mm -hmm. um, community, culture, relationships? Yeah, yeah. And, and the results came in a very tumultuous time. We're a transmitting show about education. So everything is about really the dual threat that we all were subject to. And particularly these populations were subject to the pandemic and then the, the racial justice, Black Lives Matter, murder of George Floyd, et cetera. All of this emerged towards the, the tail end of the research window. And then really, as you were, were pulling this book together, is, is that right? As I was pulling the book together, yes, the, the research ended around 2016. Okay. Um, so it was a, a little while ago now. I'm just realizing that's 2021. These things take a long time. But we did release our final re results back in 2018. Okay. And, and, and the murder of George Floyd, of course, was so omnipresent as I was finishing up this manuscript. And you'll see references to him and Philando Castile and other victims of police violence um, that were in the media at the time of writing. But even at the time of the initiative and at the time of the final results, we had Michael Blake and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice. These were some of the names of boys and young men that the students in the 
ISI we're talking about. So it's been relevant and critical and urgent this entire time. Yeah, yeah. And, and in some ways, we'll talk a little more about the, the social emotional benefits of some of these programs. In some ways, they're even more profound with the level of upheaval and the level of trauma that we're all facing. But in particular, this population who, to your point, tends to be placed in special needs classes, is suspended more, is generally put on a, a criminal justice track as opposed to uh, a higher education track from an early age. And then a lot of the, the program that was established through ESI was to counter some of those negative trends. Can you talk a little bit about what went into the, the structure? I think that there were three main components to, to ESI. Yeah, so ESI was, again, a, a pot of resources, to be specific, 250000 for each school over the course of three years, which, to give re folks some context, that represents around 3 to 10% of their budget, so not a huge amount of money, but enough to make a difference. And schools were er, encouraged to use this money to develop programming in academics and youth development and in school culture. And the school culture had a real college readiness piece to it. But but underlying the three, and I spent a lot of time did detailing this in the book, uh, was the underlying principle of culturally relevant education or culturally responsive education. So mm -hmm. that really was supposed to inform all three of those domains. Yes, yes. I've learned a lot of acronyms. CRE is uh, culturally responsive education, which again, seems very much in, in the news. I like to talk about the zeitgeist. It's very much part of the the cultural conversation nowadays, which I think we'll dive into a little bit more down the road. But before we get there, why focus on boys? Like I said, I thought you did a beautiful job laying it out in the book, but I'm sure our listeners would be curious, particularly if you think about intersectionality and what's it like as a Black girl or a Latinx girl, there, there are challenges really across the board. Why focus on boys? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, there's never a time that I've talked about this work without that really important criticism and question being called out. For New York City at the time, it was a really specific set of stats that they were using to motivate this work. And usually I show a graph to, to illustrate it, but just to get to the punchline, the college readiness outcomes showed a huge disparity between racial and ethnic disparity, but also a gender disparity. So Black and Latinas, female students were actually graduating with higher rates um, of college readiness than their male counterparts. Still not as high as their white and Asian counterparts. So there was still a racial and ethnic gap there, but mm -hmm. the gender gap was also persistent. And so that was the motivation. And again, it wasn't just the education outcomes they were looking at, but some of the other outcomes as well. But as many people have pointed out, Black girls are suspended six times as much as their white counterparts and Black and Latinas also also experience unique challenges. And I think the Young Women's Initiative that followed the Young Men's Initiative a few years later mm -hmm. started to address some of those disparities as well. Yeah. And, and, and just taking us back to the time when this first rolled out, it was when Stop and Frisk was part of the Bloomberg administration's approach, wound up in some ways getting uh, Mayor de Blasio elected, was com coming out against Stop and Frisk. But that does also speak to the specific challenges that young Black and brown boys are facing, at least were facing at the time. And then since then, there's been 
uh, a much more public conversation about uh, policing practices and how that sets up this sense of being under attack, being under uh, constant threat. And then in many ways, I think that does translate into uh, a school environment. What I found refreshing and uh, somewhat inspirational out of the book is that there was a very thoughtful design approach that was trying to counter uh, some of those uh, perceptions and some of the feelings that that these young men uh, were feeling. And I did very much appreciate uh, you talking about this being based in theory and then led by love. So like mm -hmm. actually coming at this, another thing I think was that these children don't need saviors, they need believers, was something that also resonated to me within the book. Can you talk more about the, the emotional side of the equation here? Uh, I do like to uh, quote Whitney Houston frequently and say, <laughs> I get social emotional babies. That trend has been huge. And particularly when we talk about young men in these underserved, generally they get on criminal justice track. Frequently, we don't think about their emotional health and their emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little more about that? Because I did find that to be a pretty profound component uh, to the book. Yeah, I think one of the ways that ESI was different than some of the initiatives that preceded it was a real focus on race, a real focus on racism, not being afraid to call it out, and, and also changing the conversation, changing the narrative from the boys are broken or what's wrong with Black and Latino boys or Black and Latinx boys to how are we as educators, as schools, as school leaders not serving them successfully? What can we do differently? Are we asking the right questions? And do we need to provide a different set of support? So I, mean, I think changing the conversation, as you said before, leading with love. I talk a lot in the book about evidence-based programs and efforts that schools participated in or implemented, but the, the sense of love and leadership coming from the uh, director of VSI and his team and the team of implementers who were helping schools during the four years of the initiative, th those were all really important pieces. And then within schools, the peer mentoring that you talked about, creating safe spaces to talk about the events in the media, in the boys' lives, and also celebrations. This was not just focused on trauma or some of the negative portrayals of um, Black and brown boys, but also um, celebrating successes and creating hope for the future, not just to get into college and become a successful businessman, but hope for the community, changing the narrative about our the communities in the Bronx and in Brooklyn and where mm -hmm. these war boys came from. I think some of those aspects were pretty innovative compared to some of the other kinds of initiatives that preceded ESI. The results did come in, and I would like to maybe hear from, in, in your words, just to, how would we characterize what you learned? Because it did seem like there was a very thoughtful design. Maybe some elements of the design could have been better, mm -hmm. but there was a, a clear uh, goal to measure certain outcomes. And because there has been enough time to collect all that information and start to tease out some themes and some findings. Maybe we could begin by saying, what did you learn in based on this research? And then we can start to, to look ahead to see what can we do now? What can we do moving forward? Mm -hmm. 
We so the uh, results in terms of the academic impacts. We looked at um, things like GPA, high school graduation, college readiness, and college enrollment, and the, there were no positive, significant impacts on those outcomes. And that's not to say that many of the young men in ESI schools didn't go on to college. They did go on to college. The college uh, going rate was actually higher than the city average but they were pretty similar to the comparison schools in our study. And it could have been because citywide, there was a very big focus on college. I, I also hypothesized that it might have just required more time. We could only really assess the impact on that first cohort of students in the ESI program, but perhaps over time that ESI programmatic efforts would have gotten stronger or did get stronger. And, and also I think some of the design elements could have been strengthened. So the academic portion, uh, the academic domain of ESI was pretty strong in fewer schools, but not as robust across all 40, whereas many of the schools put a lot of their investment and resources into, into the youth development, into the youth development school culture domain. There are some hypotheses that we have, and yet at the same time, I, I say, I like to say in the book, given the um, historical marginalization of this population, and the um, kinds of experiences they typically have in school, the fact that we were able to see a, a statistically significant impact on things like sense of belonging and trust in adults and conversations with adults in the building, exposure to culturally relevant education, some of those things we uh, were really robust in the ESI schools as compared to the comparison schools. So I, I think that's very promising. And I think we still have a lot to learn about what didn't work as well. Yeah, if you go longitudinal, many of these experiences are going to impact the these men now for the rest of their lives, and that's going to fall outside of the scope of what the initiative was actually measuring. Yeah, there have been some other interventions where similar results at the end of the high school pathway, for example, you might not see very robust results, but if you continue to follow that cohort a decade later, we see really interesting outcomes in terms of their relationships, their employment, their long-term earnings. We didn't follow these, these young men out 10 years, or and we could, but it would be interesting to see how the other types of long-term outcomes outcomes that have come from ESI. Yeah, yeah. And then I'd love to hear some of the examples of programmatic things that were interesting and successful. I saw quite a few in there that I thought were thought provoking. And also folks are listening, they're trying to think about what types of things could they establish locally in their school districts or near where they live. It also was somewhat decentralized too. Each school was doing its own thing. You had some feedback on that as well, but, but anything to tease out that folks maybe could build from some of these examples? Yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because one of the suggestions that I have for a district is to make programs like this or initiatives like this more cohesive. There were 40 schools in the program and sometimes it did feel like there were 40 flowers blooming. But in any case, I, I think one of the strongest pieces of that infrastructure was just the support that was provided to teachers, particularly in the areas of cultural relevant education. A lot of teachers knew what that was, but didn't really know how to apply apply it. So I talk in the book about what 
that training look like, what that PD look like, some of the organizations that are really um, well equipped to do this in schools with teachers, with educators, and then how they applied it in their actual practice and the kinds of textbooks and the lessons that they implemented in their classrooms, but also in addressing things like implicit bias. I, think I remember one teacher talking about who they like to call on in class and realizing that they usually didn't call on boys and they typically like to call on their female students. And so mm. constantly questioning, interrogating your own practice, interrogating the school's outcomes, whether that be suspensions or who's taking AP classes, who's in your honors classes, what kind of opportunities you're giving to your students. I think a set of inquiries was something that a lot of schools came away with, even after the money and resources ran out. Yeah, and I could, I could go on, but there were a lot of, I think, restorative approaches to discipline, for example, was another kind of programmatic effort. And I, I describe in the book, lots of variation. Again, schools were, had a lot of autonomy to practice things in their own way and the ways that they thought would suit their local needs uh, mm. best. But that also seemed to be targeted at a, the kind of problem that I think a lot of schools have with the disproportionality in terms of suspension and their, their Black students in particular. Yeah, and, and a related point, which I, I think many of our listeners may know, but it's worth reinforcing, is that frequently the educators who are reaching out to these students are, are not of the same background as their students. So there is a bigger problem that's highlighted here as well, which is that the majority of our educators are white or not necessarily black and brown. K-12 is not as well represented among black and brown men as educators, which I think does speak to some of the problem around finding role models and folks who you can connect with. Also, mentorship is something that that comes up really throughout, whether it is peer-to-peer -peer or it is led by other teachers and, and people in the community. Yeah, so even in New York City, a diverse city like New York, still a majority, about 75 to 80% of the teachers are white and female. And their experiences in schools and their own perceptions of boys are something that ESI try to address through things like implicit bias training, but also, again, this focus on culturally relevant education, critical consciousness for teachers and for students. And the proportion of um, Black and Latino male teachers is three to five percent. So students are not seeing themselves represented in their textbooks generally and in their teachers or the other adults in the building. And even though ESI didn't particularly focus on increasing male teachers of color. There was an adjacent program going on in New York City at the time. And that was, I think, informed by a lot of the same kinds of principles motivating ESI. Yeah. Yeah. And it also does speak to why the peer-to-peer -peer components and the community-based components in some ways were more successful. The sense of brotherhood and support from people like themselves that doesn't necessarily have to come from an authority figure. It can actually come from your peer group. Yeah, the peer-to-peer -peer mentoring was really powerful in our observations. And again, we talked with over uh, 800 principals, teachers, and students across the four years. And something that was just pervasive across schools and across contexts was the power of peer mentoring. And for as one example, a few of the schools did peer mentoring groups in which 11th and 12th grade were, graders would mentor 9th and 10th graders. And they're in these small advisory classes 
classes and sometimes they were academically focused, but they were also safe spaces mm -hmm. to have conversations uh, where teachers would take a backseat and students really had autonomy and agency and were empowered to craft that space and create that space in the way uh, they wanted. And, and then there were the resources would help them buy food, go on other trips, go on college trips, HBCUs. And so mm -hmm. some of these external resources provided them really great enrichment opportunities, but the real beauty was in the brotherhood that they continued to describe the kind of family they were able to um, create by just giving, by just having the space and the time to be together with some, some adult facilitation. Yeah, and it, it did strike me also that the culturally responsive education in many ways requires the educator to step back to your point and establish a place where that the whole concept of safe places and building a space for people, for boys in this case, to feel that they can be heard, it does establish that sense of trust as opposed to a sense of, of alienation and perhaps that leads me a little more to thinking about the future. Uh, we are a trend spotting show and uh, you're mm -hmm. someone who's done a lot of research in this space. You're still working uh, clearly in, in this space. Um, any reflection on where we are today? I, I know you were writing this through this crazy year uh, that we've been through. So you were able to incorporate some of that into the book. We're mm -hmm. talking about this in June of 2021. In some ways, there's a bit of a backlash against mm -hmm. a lot of what was maybe a broader cultural awakening that we saw over the past year. There's a lot of uh, critiques of critical race theory that are emerging, what aren't necessarily based on facts, but any sense of where we are today mm -hmm. and any message for our listeners around where you see us headed and how we can continue to make an impact? I am certainly aware and present to all of the backlash. And at the same time, I, I like to think about hope and focus on possibility. And so a lot of the districts and schools that I've been able to speak with across the country and work with locally here now in Southern California are really thinking hard about what does racial justice look like in schools? Uh, what does culture relevant look like in practice, education pro and look like in practice? And for me, as a, from my standpoint as a researcher, I came away from ESI really thinking more about cultural relevant education, but also how to expand that into a system. So I, I think one teacher can certainly exhibit culturally relevant practice and at the same time work within a system that is doing the opposite or un undermining that very work. Yeah. So what does it look like to make and create organizational change at the school level? What does it look like to engage district superintendents and other district and state leaders in and measuring and trying to understand equity and racial justice and putting that into practice. So that's some of where my research is going. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually um, um, cautiously optimistic about what at least I'm hearing from a lot of districts and schools who are really interested in engaging in this kind of work. Yeah. And at least in many districts, I think there's renewed appetite for more of the types of programs that you outlined in the book. So in that sense, hopefully this is a trend that we are seeing on an upswing. I wanted to, to, to spend a moment just on the academic results, because that did seem like an important uh, piece to understand. There were some really interesting facts uh, in the book as well around the importance of certain courses, mm -hmm. Algebra 2, for example, as something that 
frequently folks may not think about it and these students would not necessarily know to pursue those particular programs. And it relates a little bit to the idea of college readiness, but also readiness to actually complete college and to pursue a college that is properly matched to the students so that they don't necessarily underswing and, and not necessarily understand the opportunities that are out there. There's a lot to talk about in this domain, but it did seem like a space where even though the results may not have been amazing in this space, it does seem like there was a lot to be learned based on this research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and the academic piece was something I, I thought a lot about having studied schools in New York for a long time and yet because of racial and ethnic segregation of communities, brown children are, are typically in schools that have less experienced teachers, that have less resources, their physical buildings might be in worse shape and and also uh, applies to some of the academic opportunity learning experiences that they are provided. Part of what ESI tried to do because it was located in high schools was offer college coursework, even learning experiences on a college campus, things like college visits to really address college identity and seeing oneself there, seeing oneself among other Black and Latinx students in colleges within the city and outside of them. And and that algebra too, it is an important gateway course. And so some of the schools, I think the most successful academic schools in the ESI pool did really put an emphasis on four years of math and science. And at the same time, addressing any kind of fundamental skills or basic skills that students may have lacked and while not compromising on the rigor of this more advanced coursework, really addressing students' needs from both ends. Yeah. And and setting more ambitious goals. I was struck by rather than looking at, did I pass the Regents, which is the, the local in New York, that's the state exam that, that all students take. And depending on where you score, uh, you either get a Regents diploma or other diplomas. But what was really interesting to me was there are thresholds beyond passing that help you stay out of developmental education, what's historically mm-hmm. been called remedial education. There is a lot of sorting of these kids into tracks that make it harder for them to complete college that they frequently don't learn about until they're actually in the program. So I did think a lot of moving that information upstream and getting it to kids who may not have gotten, if they're the first kid in their family who's going to college, getting them that information as early as possible does seem critical. That's right. I think a big takeaway was you can never start early enough. Ninth grade for some students is already late if you really think about it, but it's much better than starting in the 11th grade, which is where a lot of schools were um, beginning the college conversation prior to ESI. And I know even in my experience, not knowing things about financial aid or the FAFSA. um, So some of the very kind of concrete logistical supports and at the same time, fulfilling these academic requirements so that they are able to enter into college without taking those remedial courses and and also able to do the work. So can you write a research paper? What kinds of writing are necessary and and prevalent in a college classroom so that you feel like you can, like you belong and you're prepared enough to do well there? Yeah. We're going to get your closing thoughts in a moment, but before we do, if folks, if they're excited by what you just talked about, if they want to learn how to 
how to learn more and how to engage. Do you have any uh, recommendations? Well, certainly the book. Uh, I think the where all of this work originated was the Research Alliance for New York City Schools. It is a research practice partnership that I helped lead and was at for almost 10 years before I came to Orange County here. And they have a lot of the prior work that we published on ESI. And in addition to a lot of practical case study guides, specifically designed for teachers and educators in schools. And so some of those have been our most downloaded products on the website. And they continue to study all kinds of things in New York City. So I always like to point people to there if they are interested in anything related to New York City education. And are the, My Brother's Keeper was, was the, the name of the program that was rolled out by the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Are there other programs that are under different language now that folks mm -hmm. should be aware of? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the my uh, best parts about doing this work is being in touch and having relationships with leaders across other districts. But because there are so many, I don't know all of the names, but the work is happening in Oakland, California, under the leadership of Chris Chapman. It's happening in Minneapolis and Boston and Chicago and even smaller school districts like Guilford, North Carolina. I've brought some of these district leaders together just to learn from each other. And a lot of the work is obviously overlapping. And then at the same time, the specific context make a difference. I, I think it's been really fascinating to, to learn uh, from each of the different ways that districts are thinking about this work. Yeah. So the book is Am I My Brother's Keeper? Educational Opportunities and Outcomes for Black and Brown Boys. Adriana Via Vicencio is the person to track down. So start there. As we're getting closer to time, Adriana, what's capturing your imagination now? It's a year-ish, not even a year, six months into the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. We're at a, a year out from the summer of Black Lives Matter. And it's a very activated time in a lot of ways. And folks are trying to understand how to identify trends and get out ahead of where the world of education is going. If you were to sum up our conversation today, the floor is yours. What would you want to say? I, I, I want to speak to the opportunity that the crises exacerbated by COVID leaves in its wake. And I, I think it can be an opportunity to reimagine systems that we have long taken for granted. And we know that education is, is one place that is not fulfilling its aspirations for marginalized students and communities. And so I, again, to reiterate, the boys aren't broken, the systems are, but I do believe there are concrete ways to change it. And I hope this book can engage in that conversation as we move uh, into this next year after COVID. Awesome. We always like to end with a little bit of hope and there's plenty of hope in the book. I would recommend it uh, to folks who want to learn more about how to address some of these fundamental problems uh, of equity and racial justice and really helping boys who, who aren't necessarily getting the proper attention from a system that doesn't always make them feel like they belong. Dr. Adriana Villavicencio, thanks again uh, for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.